Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Unheard News. I'm Freddie Sayers. We don't hear about every battle on the ground in Ukraine anymore, but what we do hear about are big arms shipments from Western powers. The UK recently sent 14 tanks. And Germany, which has had a long-standing peace policy, agreed to update it and send so-called leopard tanks alongside the US. Will it make any difference? Where do these vehicles actually go? Are we focusing on the right things? Well, we have a great military analyst who is going to join us today and try to shed some light on those questions. Before we get into the interview, I just wanted to do a shout out for Unheard as well as these videos, which I hope you're enjoying. We also publish a daily digital magazine. We host live online and in-person events, and all of that is available for subscribers. So if you haven't yet joined the Unheard gang and become a full-on subscriber, please do. You go to unheard.com join. We're going to put a button on the top right of your screen. It's less than a pound a week, which to me seems like unbelievable value. So do consider it. Now back to the interview. Michael Kaufman is a military analyst. He is director of the Russia Studies program at CNA, which is the Center for Naval Analyses. And he is also the host of the hit podcast, War on the Rocks. We've been hoping to talk to him for some time. And he joins us now. Hi, Michael. Hi, thanks for having me on your program. So there's a lot I'd love to talk about today, but let's just start, if we could, um, for a, a, a non-expert audience, this latest kind of controversy around German-made tanks, the so-called Leopard tanks, where initially the German government was reluctant to allow them to go into the field and now have changed their mind and some of them will be coming. What difference, in your view, will that actually make? Well, look, the thing about tanks is that even though tanks were, I think, a lower priority item amongst the broad range of needs that the Ukrainian military had, tanks became very symbolic politically. And the controversy revolved around German policy, the fact that Germany chose to create an artificial barrier to sending its tanks, having already sent Gepard air defense, having already said sent Mars multiple launch rocket systems and various other types of assistance. So essentially, I, I think it was a sort of self-created imbroglio within German politics and much of it had to do with the symbolism, much less the actual practicality. In fact, Ukraine had been provided several hundred tanks for the past years, most of them different types of T-72 variants, some T-55s. And the truth is that amongst the types of armored fighting vehicles that Ukraine hopes to get, 
the most significant part of the material assistance are infantry fighting vehicles and armored personnel carriers, right? It's not the tanks themselves. Not that tanks don't help, but uh, the qualitative difference between, let's say, German tanks and Soviet generation tanks that Ukraine has on the conventional battlefield where tanks are lost by the hundreds, or actually in this war now by the thousands, right? Uh, given how the war is fought, it's fairly marginal. There's a difference in degree. So how many tanks are now being made available to the Ukrainian side as a result of this decision? Do we have any sense of that yet? Uh, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it, because actually there's not a lot of clarity of who's sending how many tanks and by what period, actually, and what timeline matters as well. So as best one can tell, Poland's offering a mix of Leopard 2s and uh, some more Soviet generation tanks, PT-20s, amongst the different countries, let's say a ballpark of around 800 tanks, right? This is a very rough number and I don't want to be held to it because it's some, some countries are offering only a couple, like Canada, something anything like four. Other countries are offering 30 or uh, maybe a company plus side deployment. Then you have the United States. The United States is offering 31 Abrams tanks, which it only did in order to get Germany to agree to send Leopards, right? The, the, it was very clear that the Pentagon was not, was not keen on providing Abrams tanks and felt that they were not practical for Ukraine. So if we zoom out for us then, along what is an enormously long battle line, hundreds of miles, even if they get all of these new pieces of kit working successfully, is it a decisive difference, do you think? Do you think it could make the difference between, even if it's not victory or defeat, the, the battle lines moving in one direction as opposed to the other? What I'd say is that I think the main challenge for Ukraine on when it comes to material is really about quantity, where more is more. And it's the question of whether or not they can get enough equipment to build out several additional brigades worth. And the second is on what timeline, because all this equipment is not going to arrive until later in the spring. The folks that think that this is all going to get there for uh, and anticipate Ukraine's spring offensive, I think that's incorrect. I think most of the equipment and the training to be able to use it is likely going to show up later in the spring and may make a real impact in more towards the summer. Tell us about the, the new discussion that's already happened since the discussion about the tanks, which is the F-16s. Um, almost the, the next day after the tanks were committed, uh, the discussion moved on to those. And I believe earlier today, President Biden has appeared to rule it out. What's your assessment of the likelihood of countries like the US committing some kind of aircraft? So as best I could tell, nobody official seriously was discussing it, giving F-16s. Those are comment by the Dutch about F-16s. And it's only start another discussion. And that's why I think President Biden came out and said, no, the United States is not giving Ukraine F-16s. And since he said it, that's, that's a pretty final determination that I just heard, right? Um, of course, subject to change, but just being very honest, I was a bit surprised by the conversation moving on to F-16s, and I wasn't clear who moved in and why. Right, I think they were, it was talked about with, by some Ukrainian officials. Maybe maybe that's where it began. And there's also a big difference between need and want, okay? A lot of times you hear things, and the justification for the need isn't quite clear, but the want you can understand, yeah? And so looking at aircraft like F-16s, I can definitely see why Ukraine would want F-16s. I can see how they would reduce its relative disadvantage against the Russian Air Force, how they would improve its capacity to conduct certain types of air operations. But in general, I don't see as that significant impact it could make in this war. And so the simple question is, is that something that folks should be working on now? Or is that a lower priority item that should be kicked further down the road? 
Eventually, it's fair to say that Ukraine will probably have to switch to some kind of Western-produced aircraft. It's just a matter of when, and should it be right now in this period of the war, or not. It sounds like you think it will probably happen then. That uh, I think you said it was inevitable that the Western-made aircraft will move towards Ukraine, and that it's not an insurmountable barrier. It's probably, you think, it's a matter of when, not if. Sure, I think down the line it, it will eventually happen. I'm just not sure. I'm, I don't know for a fact it will happen in this war. And uh, I I would definitely put that much lower down the list of priorities, right? And often, just as an analyst, I find that the things that folks are talking about from a practicality and priority standpoint are the wrong things. They're the big shiny items, and they go from one shiny item to another shiny item. But none of these things are uh, going to make that big of a difference in the war relative to the aggregate weight of other things being done. Obviously, I need to ask what will make the difference then, because if we're kind of looking at the wrong thing with these controversial discussions about tanks or F-16s, when you analyze the conflict, what are the factors that you think really are decisive? Okay, sure. So the first priority items for Ukraine are air defense, air defense ammunition, artillery ammunition. Ukraine's army is fundamentally an artillery army like Russia's, and it consumes a large amount of uh, artillery ammunition both on defense and offense. Uh, establishing a sufficient production pipeline for artillery ammunition this year alone is going to be a significant challenge. Actually, a lot of folks I think, don't really understand or appreciate the artillery ammunition discussion, but it's been a significant drain on U.S. stockpiles. Neither the United States nor Western countries at base level produce enough artillery ammunition. So it has to come out of stocks, right? And that's not a long-term sustainable solution. So this is always something that's kind of as a bare minimum that's necessary but not sufficient to sustain Ukraine's war effort. That's issue one. On a conversation regarding what would Ukraine need to be able to conduct offensive operations under the conditions this year, which are rather different than 2022. Ukraine does not enjoy manpower advantage. The Russian military is defending a much shorter front with a higher density of forces, right? The Russian military has mobilized personnel and they can continue mobilizing and rotating forces, so they have reserves, okay? It means that fights this year are likely to be more difficult and more costly than they were last year, Kherson and Kharkiv. And Kherson by itself was a very difficult battle. Ukraine was ultimately successful, but was a very traditional battle with slow incremental progress, and Russian forces ultimately withdrew with the bulk of their personnel and equipment from, uh, from across the river. So uh, looking at what Ukraine might need, I'd probably categorize it three ways. Uh, first and most importantly is quality of advantage and precision guided weapons. If Ukraine is an artillery army, and if we've given them their advantage of long-range precision strike, then the conversation needs to be about the quality of advantage of the kind of munitions we can provide them. If we cannot provide a sufficient fires advantage over the Russian military, which I don't think we can. I, mean, I don't think we can supply the Ukrainian military with enough artillery fires and enough artillery tubes, because about maybe a third of these are out of service at any given time, to get such a significant advantage over the Russian armed forces. What's the typical Western advantage? Quality, precision, right? More advanced weaponry that allows you to offset quantity. Second, force employment, okay? One of the biggest challenges is uh, actual employment. If, if you think about infantry, armor, artillery, and getting more effective employment in combined arms and uh, more efficient use of these forces together. So folks talk about tanks and talk about infantry fighting vehicles. But if you look at the training program, at the battalion level that's been launched recently, it's very anemic. It's about one battalion per month, and it just started. So what's this going to produce for the anticipated Ukraine offensive operation later in the spring? A couple of battalions? 
So when you think about how far behind we are in terms of training to try to get Ukrainian forces to more effectively use this equipment, the, the most deterministic factor usually in outcomes in a battle is force employment, how you use the forces. It's not necessarily just the quality of advantage of Western infantry fighting vehicles over Soviet ones. Yeah? Like if you're not using them well, if you're not using them the way they're meant to be, if they're not using them effectively, the, the technological advantage won't get you there. I just want to be frank about that. So folks want to focus on a shiny thing. And when you talk about training and scaling up training, you, don't, you, you see a very anemic effort. And the last one for me, I already discussed, is quantity. You just need more, a lot more. So put those three items together, and I think you end up with a little bit more of a pessimistic view of Ukraine's prospects than maybe many in the media talk about. Because if we can't even provide enough of the pipes and artillery to, to make a decisive uh, advantage of the Russians, and they're not training up people fast enough, maybe they're actually coming short of the numbers of people they would need, even if they could train them up, it feels like it's going to be a waiting game in some respect, and eventually they're going to run out of some of these things. Is that is that a fair kind of extension of what you've said? No, I think these are solvable problems. I just think media's expectations are often wildly outside of the way this war has been progressing and what you can anticipate in the near term. This is a long war. It's going to be a protracted war. Okay, Media often drives kind of momentum narratives and has high expectations over things. They just don't match the reality on the ground. So all of these are challenges that can be resolved, and I think they will be over time. They just won't be resolved maybe to media's expectations on their desired timelines. But, you know, I don't necessarily see that as a problem, to be very frank. So uh, my take on it is that, yeah, it, it may drive not a pessimistic, but what I would call a realistic understanding of what this year may hold and what to anticipate in terms of uh, combat performance from both sides. The Russian military has a lot of challenges of its own to get through, and its offensive potential, as best one can tell, is quite limited. It's fairly circumscribed. And you can see that by the way they've been attempting offensives over the last couple months. So all things considered, uh, long term, Ukraine has significant advantages, and most importantly, it's backed by a coalition of states with basically a, a massive defense industrial capacity and GDP. But that only speaks to potential, right? Excel spreadsheets don't fight. So that potential has to translate into material assistance, into training, into support, and it has to translate consistently. And I hope what I've conveyed to you is that if at any point uh, Western countries really let their foot off the, off the gas, to kind of use a colloquialism, uh, it will very rapidly, could very rapidly result in a stalemate, right? To understand that nothing is overdetermined going into the second year of this war. A lot of things remain contingent. And uh, the the broad areas where Western support is required, it, it will be quite a bit more than what you see announced in this January package, despite the kind of applause and, and I think self-congratulation that came with it and the massive political breakthrough that was sending tanks after we've already sent hundreds of tanks. One detail, do you think there are US or Western soldiers inside Ukraine in an unofficial capacity helping with training and things? Is, what's the likelihood of that? I don't know. But if they are, they're probably British. I think the likelihood of that is very high. Why is that? So, just, just my, let's put, let's put it this way, it's just, it's just one analyst guess. <laughs> okay. That kind of brings us on in a way to sheer numbers. And I'd love to get your estimate of that, because I'm not sure people are fully aware. 
What do you think the kind of army size of these two nations is in terms of what they have access to now and what they might have access to in six months or a year's time? How much bigger is the Russian army? So that's a great question. Um, it, let's say hypothetically the Russian military at the beginning of this war was a bit over 800,000 strong. Let's just put a ballpark number around 850,000 uh, active force. The Russian armed forces, uh, if you look at just army, naval infantry, and uh, airborne that were used, are actually quite small, maybe 360,000 altogether. So a significant percentage of the force were actually mobilized personnel from LDNR, the occupied regions of Luhansk, Donetsk in Ukraine, and Rosguardia, the Russian National Guard, which wasn't very interoperable, not actually set up for war fighting at all. That's why you saw them like ride police and these other kind of units. Okay, so basically my point is we're not just counting the Russian army. Actually, a, a significant percentage of the casualties they took in the spring, they were offsetting onto mobilized personnel from Luhansk and Donetsk. And, and so you have these other, uh, other units as well that have been involved. But in general, um, I, with, without much certainty and sort of throwing a dart at the board, right, because they just don't have fidelity on us. And honestly, same regarding your question on, on Ukrainian forces. They don't know. Ukrainians are very good at keeping things secret. I don't blame them. They're in a war. Why would they be revealing any of this? Uh, I'd say on the Russian end, it's probably fair to say that they have somewhere uh, north of 200,000 personnel uh, at any given time fighting in Ukraine. This is, you're, you're talking about what's in Ukraine versus what's outside of it. And I think, I think on the Ukrainian side, it probably is somewhere between 150, 200,000 in terms of what's on the front. I think if you count the all the personnel involved in Ukraine effort, you will get a, a massive number because this war is consuming something upwards of, I think, 50% of Ukrainian GDP. And in terms of everyone in the army, territorial defense forces, anyone involved in the war effort, they might get up to 700,000 personnel. But if you really look at what is on the line at any given time, in terms of combat credible forces that are actually engaged in some aspect of the war, defending some part of the front, probably more down towards 200 around the same. That's why I say that there isn't a substantial relative manpower difference in what you see deployed in the forces, but those aggregate numbers conceal big differences in quality, in motivation and morale, in uh, the level of support they get, and, and other factors. So if actually the armies on the ground are not that different in size, what does that mean going forward? Is it true that there's a deeper bench in Russia because the just basically the population is so much bigger, so that if it ends up in a long-term war of attrition, fast forward one year, Ukraine is going to start to run out of people, whilst Russia won't. Is that, put very simply, is that something we should think about? Uh, I would put it differently. Yes, Russia has more people. That's true. But like that's, that's one of the, if you just focus on that variable, it'll drive, you know, it, it'll lead to selection bias in how you assess the future prospects of the war, right? Uh, United States and other countries in the West have far more money, defense industrial Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Passy military equipment and better capability and we can continuously arm and supply to ukraine all right and uh we can't just select for the manpower factor and say that that should drive the whole conversation that said i think to me just the way i i approach this i, I think your point is quite valid what it tells us is that in terms of manpower quality over time ukraine may have a real issue Hansai raised training as something that really needs to be scaled up rather than conversations about which German tank to send, okay? Because over a course of a war of attrition, your best people are lost. They become unrecoverable casualties in the war. You are replacing them with lower quality folks you have mobilized, okay? That will impinge on your ability to conduct offensive operations. Offensive operations and land warfare, by definition, are harder than defensive operations. To put it another way, it's a lot easier to have mobilized personnel hold a trench than it is to get them to engage in combined arms offensive maneuver, right? The, the challenge between those two is very substantial, the asymmetry, okay? So quality matters. Ukraine may have the manpower over time still, even though it's a much lower population, and quite a few refugees and IDPs, but the quality may continue to deteriorate over time as the war goes on. That's why you have to address force reconstitution. Let me try and go into one more potentially speculative area and see how far we get, which is this big question of nuclear. Obviously, it's talked about a lot, and I think pretty understandably, given that we're ultimately talking about two nuclear-armed powers, if you count the broader West, it seems reasonable that people worry about it. Yeah, we're talking about the prospect of Russia using nuclear weapons in Ukraine. I mean, is this the thrust of it? That's the thrust of it. Okay. Well, it's certainly feasible. I think to me, the question is, is it likely, is it a serious risk in this war? Yes, it is. 
Okay, it's probably the highest risk we we face of potential nuclear use since 1983. Archer. Is this risk so high that it merits um, uh, a, a degree, you know, let's say uh, a degree of of um, of caution beyond that, which is reasonable? No, I would think I would say it probably hinges on uh, on two factors. First, likely criteria for Russian nuclear use. From my point of view, based on at least what I've seen so far in this war, can't can't predict it with any great confidence. But likely is a military defeat that leads to a cascade collapse and loss of cohesion of their forces in theater. Right. So a military, military defeat by Russia, you think, would make a nuclear event more likely? A military defeat by oh, Ukraine. By Ukraine Russia, of Russia, yeah. In this war, beyond what you've seen in Kharkiv and Kherson, something that essentially. Uh, makes the entire war effort no longer viable or sustainable, that would likely then lead to a discussion in Russian political leadership on the proposition of nuclear use, okay? And how that shakes out, no one can know because it actually only depends on one person's view at the end of the day, right? Vladimir Putin's. Um, and everybody has their own mental picture of Vladimir Putin and what he's like and their own estimation of whether he's like or not likely to use nuclear weapons, okay? But I think so that's scenario one, you said, that it, a, a catastrophic defeat on the Russian side makes that more likely. What was the other potential? I think that's the only I think that's the only real scenario, because that catastrophic defeat also then leads to the proposition that Ukraine may recapture Crimea as well on top of it, because the Russian forces are in no position to fight in Ukraine and they're not in position to defend Crimea either. So all those scenarios are actually interlinked to one conditional event. OK, and then. An individual force perception of what is the likelihood the Russian leadership will use nuclear weapons. And some of the conversation, I think, is a little bit abstract and cursed around the subject, which is, is it Russia's interest to use nuclear weapons? No, of course it's not. Would unbalanced Russian political leadership see catastrophic defeat in Ukraine with regime implications for themselves because they fully committed to this war as of September? Would unbalanced they see that as a worse outcome than the potential risk of using nuclear weapons and, and all the costs that come with them? That's the right conversation to have, and I have no answers to that. Well, it seems it, one conclusion from what you said seems pretty clear, which is that kind of paradoxically, the better the West does in Ukraine, the closer it pushes Russia to catastrophic defeat, the higher the likelihood of a nuclear event. In principle, yes, that risk grows the closer Russian forces come to defeat. Our perception of that risk relative to what it might be is one of the driving aspects of the conversation in the West. That's why escalation management remains an important imperative. And I think folks should neither be dismissive and hand-waving about this, basically saying, well, Russians just won't use nuclear weapons, as though it's not a potential outcome, but also not have those be an object or fear or terror that, that hangs over Western efforts. Sort of fairly consistently, I think we've seen an increase of Western support, material assistance, and greater involvement in this conflict uh, demonstrate that many fears of escalation are uh, were either outsized or the escalation can effectively be managed over time. Right. That being said, wars are fundamentally unstable systems. Okay. Meaning, you have all sorts of events that take place in wars that lead uh, that lead to reactions and, and and choices by leaders. That can lead to very rapid right. escalation. So, we, so, with all of those caveats, we have to make the decision whether that's an unstable system we want to test or not. Um, you know, I don't know who's going to be 
around claiming the credit if it turns out to go the other way. Um, I just find the implication of what you said pretty profound, and it doesn't feel like it's talked about very much in the media when we discuss this conflict, which is that absolute victory by the West potentially dramatically increases the chance of disaster. And like, we should be thinking about that more, and maybe that changes what we consider victory to look like. Well, that's a thorny political point. What I will say is that my impressions, governments are actually quite aware of, of the risks of nuclear escalation, their potential, its potential. I think the question is always, does the risk increase from what to what? And is it tolerable and manageable? Uh, the risk and consequences of military defeat for Ukraine, the political implications of that are also very significant, I would say. And no, these are not easy dilemmas to reconcile. Not at all. Uh, I will say that great powers lose wars all the time, historically, and nuclear powers have lost conventional wars too. However, this war in particular is a distinct case given the political implications for Russia, the country fighting it, and the implications for the actual regime. So there is an uncomfortable degree of uncertainty on some of these questions. And I think thus far, a year into this war, it's been managed pretty effectively. But, and, and to tie us back to, I think, what, what maybe is even a more practical discussion, when folks talk about constraints, like why won't the United States send ATACMs, or why won't uh, the United States allow Ukraine to use long-range uh, precision-guided weapons supplied by the United States to strike Russian territory, right? These sort of questions come up. I think the answer is that uh, one of the imperatives is escalation management. And it's this discussion we just had. That's one of the factors involved. And some folks may judge it to be wrong. Some folks may judge it to be right. But I, I do believe that these are the, the, the risks that, that policymakers and decision makers are grappling with in how they pursue material support uh, in, in this conflict. You talked about not skirting around the edges, saying it as it is. And that's what we like to do here on Her, definitely. In terms of what an ending could look like, uh, and don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to forecast what it's going to be, but the taking back of Crimea, practically speaking, in kind of sensible circles, is pretty much ruled out. Is, is that fair to say? Uh, my impression is that that's not quite the case. The way I the way I would describe at least my interpretation of, of the way the subject is discussed is that uh, first, if Ukraine is so militarily successful, it's taken back the south, and it's actually in a position to debate what steps should next be taken in Crimea. That is a brilliant problem to have, and you know I hope we get there, and then and then folks can debate on what the best approach to Crimea is. Second, the very likely Ukraine does not intend to retake Crimea militarily but rather create the conditions that would force a status renegotiation by Russia, right? That there are different ways of managing the question of Crimea. Yes, it is the Ukrainian intent to uh, restore control over Crimea, but that the, the way of doing that may not be via sustained military assault, right? Ukraine can actually be in position uh, to, to make sustainment uh, or logistical supply to Crimea quite challenging. So I don't, you know, the, the way I'm basically framing the subject is I don't think it's necessarily Ukraine's uh, intention to retake Crimea via military means the way they are liberating other parts of the country. But it is their political goal to restore control over all the territory of Ukraine, right, uh, going back to pre-2014 lines. So that's my sense of it. It's confusing, Michael. 
I think a lot of people, you know, it, this is officially the goal. It's a political goal, as you put it. It's certainly the goal of the more nationalistic components within the Ukrainian army. They're not going to be very happy if suddenly, oh, hey, we're going to let Crimea stay as it is. So it's a very much a live issue, and it doesn't seem like it's talked about very much. Let me ask the follow-up then, which is those two provinces in the east, which collectively are called the Donbass. We had someone on our show recently who's a real ardent supporter of the Western efforts in Ukraine. In fact, he is half Ukrainian. And he ended up saying that he thinks the ending does involve um, some sort of special settlement for those two eastern provinces. They're not going to be fully taken back into Ukraine as every other part of the country. And he thinks that's realistic. Do you agree with that? Here's what's fair to say. There's no return to status quo anti-bill. There's the one point where this war is not going to end is February 23rd lines where it began. That is quite clear. Okay. Either the Ukrainian military has the ability to substantially press Russian forces in offensive operations, in which case there's no logical stopping point on February 23rd. It's neither a viable political boundary, nor a geographical boundary, nor any sort of boundary. Nor can you picture a Ukrainian president basically getting to February 23rd lines, which are minimum interim goals, and saying, all right, uh, we should talk about settlement for the rest of this territory rather than trying to retake it. Right? That's not a viable approach that I see. So either Ukraine can do it, or this year will likely be the test of it. It cannot. It does not have the military. We cannot provide Ukraine with a sufficient relative advantage, right, to, to press the Russian military in that manner. In which case, the settlement also, let's say not settlement, but uh, line of control will also not approach February 23rd lines. And therefore, it's, it's neither here or there to discuss uh, any settlement for uh, the Donbass and, and these eastern regions. I hope that makes sense, right? So I think this year actually will be a very good indicator of what you can anticipate to potentially be the outcome of this war. And I think many folks will be looking, particularly through spring and summer, to get a rough sense of what further material aid and assistance can accomplish. And here's a couple more disappointing notes. First, it's typically up to the loser to decide when the war is over. So if Ukraine wins, it doesn't mean that Vladimir Putin will concede. What can follow this is actually a sustained war of attrition, where Russia doesn't give up, even though its forces are defeating Ukraine. That, by the way, is an option if you're thinking of, you know, what's an out for potential nuclear escalation. That's one. Folks assume that if Ukrainian forces are sort of victorious on the battlefield, then Russia concedes. It's actually not how many wars go. I'll give you an example. Uh, Israel won decisively in the Six-Day War in 1967. And what followed was a three-year war of attrition with Egypt. 6770. And then what followed after that is a continuation war because all the core issues of that war hadn't been resolved, right? This war is a continuation war of the 2014 conflict. And there's a fair chance that how this war ends will only ensure an unhappy peace, which will lead to another continuation war. You've seen that between India and Pakistan. You've seen it between Armenia and Azerbaijan. You've seen it in Arab Israeli conflicts. I hate to make this pessimistic comment. But here is what I consider to be the logical extension of what you said which is that if a breakthrough by the Ukrainian side will likely just be continued until they can't go any further, because why would they stop if they gain that kind of superiority? And that that could lead to a very dangerous situation where Russia really feels backed into a corner. It doesn't seem very desirable. Similarly, I think most people in the West would say if Russia has a breakthrough and goes through the whole of Ukraine, that's not very desirable either. So 
the unhappy conclusion is that this war of attrition that you're, you've described with both sides bedding down, spending more, continuing to kill people, but the lines not moving very dramatically, probably for years to come, is almost the safest solution for the rest of the world. First, I find the first scenario you described so far to be the most desirable out of all the other ones. Second, if there is to be a stalemate that emerges in this war, it has to be a natural stalemate, not one that is artificially arrived at by folks who have either given up early or have cynically driven the conflict into the scenario because they no longer want to sustain the war effort or they're overly uncomfortable with the risk of Ukrainian success. And I see that quite a bit, I'll be frank, that point of view, that, that the risk of Ukrainian success is significant in terms of uh, escalation potential. And, and I'm probably quite aware of it. I think I hope I've conveyed a fairly sober view of that prospects and the reality. Still think that by far the more preferable outcome is to see what Ukrainians can do with Western support. And if a stalemate emerge, it's one that they've agreed to because they believe that force of arms will not be sufficient, right, to pursue their political objectives and they have to do them elsewhere uh, off the battlefield. That said, you know, one of the biggest challenges with this whole proposition is that alternative isn't really there. Because on the Russian side, there is no willingness for any serious negotiations. And their minimal war aims are fundamentally incompatible with anything Ukraine can accept, right? So isn't this other kind of alternative of what is it that you intend to do other than this? Yeah. Um, and keeping in mind that strategic defeat for Russia is not the same as victory for Ukraine. They are interrelated but distinct objectives. If the proposition is to sustain a grinding stalemate, then what you're, what you're intellectually committing to is something that looks like a defeat for Russia and also for Ukraine. Because Ukraine will have lost GDP and population and territory, and, and no one will be able to point to this and say, this is what success really looks like. Yes, you could, you could maybe spin it as a period. I mean, they're not going to say it out loud, but do you think that is actually what is being said behind closed doors? Because this kind of calibrated support, not exceeding a certain amount, but making sure they, they don't suffer big setbacks is basically resulting in that kind of stalemate. I mean, I've heard that argument being made. I don't think that's the intent. My personal view is I don't think that's actually the intent, but I've definitely heard that. I've heard it being described this way. I do not think it is a cynical pursuit of a stalemate. Of a stalemate. However, is it possible that it ends in, in this unsatisfactory manner rather than far more optimistically? Yes, yes, it's very possible. Michael Kaufman, thank you for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me on your program. Well, I feel like I've been in a war of attrition myself after that conversation. Michael Kaufman, a great military analyst, an expert on these things, being very cautious about what he could be drawn on, not saying anything very definitively, but the overall picture, I think you probably agree, was somewhat gloomy in that the most likely scenario seems to be a long, drawn-out war of attrition with neither side making huge gains. One thing I did try to push him on was what the risks of the different end games actually are. He said pretty clearly that the threat of nuclear escalation is real and should be taken seriously. That threat increases the most if Russia suffers a catastrophic defeat and considers that to be a risk to their regime. And in particular, if Ukraine starts pushing on into Crimea, that risk gets more substantial. At the same time, Taking back Crimea, control of all of Ukraine, is still the stated political objective of the Ukrainian government and certainly of the nationalist militia. And he also said if they do get the upper hand militarily, thanks to Western support, 
they will most likely not stop, but continue as far as they can go. Don't know what you think, but to me, that combination of things is more than a little bit concerning. Thanks for tuning in. This was Unheard. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.